The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time now to open the scriptures, and I'd like to invite you to open up to Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 8 is on page 450 of a pew Bible, or if you've got other Bibles, the the pages are there. Uh, Open up to the book of Psalms, and Psalm 8, uh, last week... We started the first of four sermons for the rest of the month of September on ultimate questions. And these four ultimate questions make up what we call a worldview. The four questions are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Last week we looked at the question of origin. Where do we come from? Today we're looking at the question of Meaning. What is the purpose of life? All right. So these are these are big questions. These are going to ultimate questions. These four questions: origin, meaning, morality, destiny, make up collectively a worldview, which is the way you look at the world and the way you interpret everything you believe. They are your most essential commitments that you have about life and its purpose, where it's headed, and what's it all about. And every single person in here today and every single person you know has a worldview. The question is, is what kind of worldview do they have? We said last week that there are different kinds of worldviews. And of course, we understand that among different worldviews, worldviews often collide and contradict each other. And most of the disagreements that you have, that you are so passionate about perhaps, that you maybe argue with people about or, or get into uh, some controversy over, have to do with the fact that you have worldview commitments that don't match other people's worldview commitments. But what we want to spend this month doing is evaluating the Christian worldview. What are the essential components or what are the answers to the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny that a biblical understanding gives? What are the answers of a Christian to the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? Today, we're looking at the second one, meaning, why do we exist? And last week, we we looked at some samples of worldviews, and today we'll We'll look at a few of those samples as well and understand uh, how would a person who believes this answer the meaning question? How would a person who believes that answer the meaning question? And how should a Bible-believing Christian answer the meaning question of why do I exist? Now, I want you to know at the beginning here that the Christian faith is full of wonderful answers to that question. Full of wonderful, joyful, meaningful answers to those who belong to Jesus Christ about why we exist. And there's many things that we could say, but we're going to try to just focus in one text and say one thing very clearly about the meaning of the life that God has given to us. So, if you're in Psalm 8, you're in the right place. Uh, Let's pause and ask God's blessing on his word and then dive into this question of meaning. Why do we exist? Let us pray. Lord, we are well aware that in the world today, uh, many people believe many different things. And Lord, we, we confess to be those who believe in you and who are seeking to follow you. And Lord, we want to understand what it means to understand life as you've created it. And so we pray that as we look to the word of God now, the scriptures, that you would illuminate our minds, that we might understand, and that 
that you would also make our hearts a place of fertile soil so that the seed of your word can be deeply planted and bear fruit to the glory of your name. Lord, give us understanding today and may understanding result in fruitfulness, we ask. In the power of Jesus' name, amen. And now hear God's word from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, how majestic is your name. This is the word of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. And so may he write its eternal truth on our hearts today, especially as we consider this question of meaning. Why do we exist? I was uh, flying back and forth to Orlando for uh, meetings for the uh, Permanent Committee on Theology in the National Office, so uh, four different flights to get to Orlando, and uh, I didn't get empty seats next to me at any particular point, uh, which means that I had a, a, a ready person to listen to me uh, every time you sit down in an airplane, but I, I admit to being a person who uh, stays in my own kind of zone on an airplane. I, I do my best reading on airplanes, actually, and I get a lot accomplished. Uh, but every now and then, I just love to turn to someone you know, and, and uh, greet them and uh, maybe ask him a question or two. And what I laughed at was uh, if I had the boldness and the courage, I didn't do this, okay? I should admit this to you. If I had the boldness and the courage to start a conversation, by just turning to the person next to me and saying, what do you think the meaning of life is? And I, I think I would have really put them back if I had begun a conversation that way. Uh, you might ask a person that if you have a pre-existing relationship with them, but a first introduction on an airplane is a really awkward place to say, what's the meaning of life? And what do you think about the meaning of life? But I thought, what if I had done that? And what if someone would have said something really wonderful that I could have shared with you? But I didn't do it. I thought of it. I did not do it. But... I imagine that you maybe have done something like that with someone you already know. Maybe gotten into a conversation, whether it was a friend or a family member or a neighbor, where your relationship with them provided the context in which it was, shall we say, relationally safe to ask that serious of a question. What do you think the meaning of life is? Why do you exist? And I imagine that, that you can think of people right now that if you were to ask that question to, uh, you would get a number of different answers. That we all have people in our life that are probably on a, a spectrum of thoughtfulness about that question. But I want to think 
today not so much about those people that you might think of, but rather us as we sit under the authority of God's word today, coming to a clear conviction about what the meaning of life is according to the scriptures, so that we who confess the name of Jesus might have a clear answer to that question if you were to ever sit next to a pastor who turns to you and says unsuspectingly, what's the meaning of life? That you would have an answer and they would be able to say, oh, that's a, that's a live one. That's a real Christian we've got sitting there. So as we think of Psalm 8, as we approach this text, it's helpful for us to know, and we see in the details, that David wrote this psalm. And that's helpful, of course, because we know quite a bit about David. David's the boy who slays Goliath and later becomes king. But before that, he's just the humble shepherd, the youngest son of Jesse, youngest of all of his brothers, and so therefore most likely to draw the short straw when it comes to the night shift of watching the sheep. And so we can maybe picture David in Psalm 8. See him watching the sheep. Look at him in verse 3 when he writes, When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, you can, you can almost picture David laying on his back, can't you? Looking up at the night sky. He's looking up and he is just astounded. He's saying, Wow. Look at that. I imagine that you've had that experience. Or at least I hope you have. And uh, we, we are very privileged where we live that we can have the ability to look up at the night sky. See the stars and see the moon. You can see the sunrise across the field and the sunset across the field. You can look all of that and, and think how amazing it is. I think about Psalm 8 when I take out the trash. Uh, because our trash goes out on Sunday night and I walk out in the driveway and it's dark and you just look up and just take a moment. And that's what Psalm 8 is getting at, isn't it? What is this, Lord, that you've made? How majestic is your name in all the earth? Now, when you look up in the stars, of course, uh, some of us are more interested in astronomy than others perhaps, but National Geographic says that from any one vantage point on the globe, that the maximum number of stars you could see, if you were to count them, uh, that you would max out, max out about 2,500 is the, the number of stars that we could see from any one vantage point on the globe. And David looks up and he sees perhaps a maximum of 2,500 stars. And the question is, is, do we have the same response that David does when he looks up and sees the stars? Because when David looks up, he's taken to a place of, awestruck wonder and worship. But that leads him also to another place. And we have more information than David does about the natural world. We have the research data from NASA and we have uh, the wonders of science and the world that God has made to evaluate the world that God has made because we learn that even though David at maximum could only see 2,500 stars just like we could, we know that there are actually, science tells us, between 200 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. And because our galaxy is just one of what they think is something of 500 billion galaxies in the entire universe, that means a conservative estimate of the number of stars in the known world are somewhere in the range of 30 billion trillion, okay? So that is a three with 22 zeros after it is perhaps the number of stars in the sky, 
Okay? But David, David stands, lays beneath the display of creation, and he's immediately drawn to the Creator. And I wonder when you see him in verse 4, asking the question, what is man? You might ask that question from a place of seeming insignificance. Look at this world. Look at how big it is. And look at how small I am in comparison. Or you might look at it as, look at this wonderful creation. And I am also a creation of God. You would have that view if you agree with the Christian understanding of origins that God made you. But regardless of exactly how you think David is asking the question, he is looking up to the skies, thinking of the Creator, the one who knows all things, who made all things, who knows the number of grains of sand on every beach, and who knows the number of hairs on your head, who knows everything about you, who who holds the stars in the sky and keeps them there. John Calvin says the whole earth is a theater for God's glory and David is looking at that theater and he's trying to wrap his mind around this issue again in verse 4. Why do I exist? What am I here for? What's this life all about? This massive universe that you've made, Lord. What am I? Again, verse 3, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? What is man? You know, we've been trying to answer that question. Culture has been trying to answer that question. The philosophers have been trying to answer that question. The poets, the, the scientists, the theologians, everyone has an opinion. What is man? What are you? What is your life? And what is it for is what verse 4 is asking. Well, let's think of some potential answers to that question, depending on your convictions. We saw last week that there is this worldview called nihilism, which says nothing exists and there is no purpose. How does the nihilist answer the question of verse 4? What is man? And they would say, man is nothing. You are nothing. This world is nothing. There is no God. Some of you might know the name Richard Dawkins, the well-known atheist and Oxford biologist. He champions this particular view when he speaks of human life and he says this. There is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference to this thing we call humanity. Or if you were to consult the the young atheist's handbook on this question, they would say this, yes, of course I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose. But the trick is to wake up every morning is not to wake up every morning and feel that way. You should embrace cognitive dissonance. Life has no purpose, but you can still live in a fantasy. The ultimate end of the modern secular worldview is that human beings and all of life have absolutely zero cosmic significance and your life has absolutely zero meaning whatsoever. Have a good day. 
And that is a worldview that is increasing in its popularity in the world today. And I imagine you might be able to pick out an illustration of that in your own life. People who have a nihilistic view of the world, no purpose, no meaning. We'll put that aside for a second because there's another alternative. There are those who would suggest that there is meaning in the world and there is meaning for your life. But meaning in the world and meaning for your life is that which is only subjectively determined. Subjectively determined, meaning it's different for everybody and different in every place. People in this worldview would prefer to determine their own purpose and their own meaning. My life means whatever I say it means, and your life can mean whatever you say it means, and we don't have to agree. And that's okay because it's subjective. It's different for every person. If what we are is utterly subjective, then anything is true, right? Whatever you say is true is true for you. Whatever you say is true is true for you. And you can't say anything about the purpose of the other person's life because it's entirely subjective in this view. And the consequences of that worldview is, is that if what we are is not understood as given to us by God, then it gives us the ultimate license to be able to say and do whatever we want with this life. It allows total license to live as we please, which is, of course, the dominating desire of not just Western culture, but sinful humanity inherently. I get to do what I want according to whatever I want, any way I want. Totally subjective. Now, this worldview in this second illustration is actually presenting to you all over the place but I don't think that we are so cautious as to realize it. This worldview lends itself to more subjective and therapeutic views of the world because your purpose in this life is totally subjective. And it sounds like this. Listen to this. What is the meaning of life? Why do we exist? This worldview would answer that your ultimate purpose in this life is to be happy. Your ultimate purpose in this life is to leave a legacy. Your ultimate purpose in this life is to love others. Your ultimate purpose in life is to create your own meaning, to make a positive difference, to have a variety of experiences, to find something important enough to justify your suffering, and famously this way, the ultimate meaning of your life is to live your life as the hero of your own story. Now, these ways of looking at life are on the surface much less threatening, but they are from that worldview that says it's just subjective, do whatever you want, you're all living your own story, and so live your own life. But the question that we find in Psalm 8 is does that view of the world or the nihilistic view of the world match with the reality we talked about last week, the fact that I exist. I'm here. I have an origin. Now that I'm willing to realize that I have an origin, my next question is, what is this for? What is this life for? And the thing that I want us to be seeing over this month as we're looking at these questions and examining the scriptures is that the Christian worldview is the only worldview 
that gives consistent and coherent answers to every single one of these four questions. For example, if you were a nihilist on the issue of meaning, you would say, I exist, but my meaning has no existence. That doesn't make any sense. Or if you were a subjectively determined view of the purpose of your life, you would say, I exist, but I exist with ultimately zero reference to the one who made me, and I get to determine everything. That's inconsistent as well. What does the Christian worldview have to offer on this point? The Christian worldview says, your life is not meaningless. There is no person in this world whose life is meaningless, according to the Christian worldview. You don't have to reach a point of despair. And we see David in that place. When David looks up at the world, he doesn't see blind, pitiless indifference, according to Richard Dawkins. He sees motivation to praise God, doesn't he? David's not in despair. And David does not conclude that the purpose of David's life is to do whatever David says is the purpose of David's life. No, he says, Lord, you made me. And in this life, you have given me meaning. The Christian worldview offers this. And I want to be very clear about this because Christianity is the only view of the world and the only world religion that offers a unique point on this issue of meaning. In the Christian faith, we answer the question to why does life have meaning with the answer that human beings are created in God's image. Christianity is the only worldview that offers that. It is utterly unique on this point. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in God's image? If you look in verse 5 here in Psalm 8, you can start to pick up the hints of what David is reflecting on. David is thinking about the way that God has made him. David is thinking about these worldview questions of origin and meaning. He says, Lord, you made me. Verse 5, you have made him, you have made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion, verse 6, over the works of your hands. What does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis 1 and 2. And that's exactly the point. It sounds like when God says in Genesis 1 verse 26, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Our view of creation informs our view of the meaning of life when we say that God has implanted within us, in human beings' existence, in the very way that he has created us, a significance and a meaning and a purpose that David is reflecting on here in Psalm 8. And because your life comes from God, if you try to define your life apart from God, it won't make any sense. A life given by God is a life that must be understood through the God who gave it. You didn't make yourself. You are not your own creator, and so therefore, the meaning of your life cannot be determined by yourself. The point that we're seeing here in Psalm 8 is that human beings are not the random result of a benevolent biological accident. We are not just the result of random molecules in motion, but human beings are, in the words of Psalm 8, the crown of creation. 
the crowning jewel of all creation, the highest product of creative design, the object of divine affection and intention. Think back into the early chapters of Genesis. Yes, humanity is formed from the dust of the ground, but Genesis 2 verse 7 says that God breathed life into the dust. Do you remember that? He breathed life into into us and made us living beings with a body and a soul and therefore totally distinct from every other part of creation. Human beings are the only part of creation that has a soul. Now, I know you love your pets and I love mine. Animals are not of the order of creation that humanity is. Somebody from PETA is going to call us on the phone on that point, right? But it is only human beings that have souls. Because it is only to humanity that God has breathed life. When God breathed us into, breathed life into us, he made us in his own image. And that phrase, the image of God is so important and it answers our question of meaning and God speaks of the image of God three times in two different verses in Genesis 1 when we read this then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them so if being in the image of God is such an important component of the Christian worldview what does it mean how would you answer that question? What does it mean for you to be made in the image of God? We're going to try to answer that here because who we are is a, a reflection of who God is. And what that does right away is it underscores dignity to humanity. You know, one of the things that's so important about the Christian worldview over against other worldviews, especially in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, was because it is uniquely in the Christian worldview that we give this idea of that humanity is made in the image of God and therefore all people have worth and dignity because it used to be the case that only the king was said to be made in God's image. And the rest of humanity only existed to be slaves to God. Slaves to the creator and slaves to the one person on earth that God has made in his image, the king. The rest of you, you're going to go slop in the field. You're going to go clean everything else. You're worthless. You're nothing. The king has been made in the image of God. And so could you imagine how revolutionary it is to say in the Christian faith that not just the king and not just royalty, not just the nobility, but every single person. There are people in the world today that the way they think about their own life if they could be told this reality could be rescued out of a pit of despair. You matter. Your life has dignity and worth because God made you and you are made in God's image. So what does this mean? Here are, here are four things that it means to be made in the image of God and therefore why you have meaning and why you exist. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? To be made in the image of God, first of all, means that we live a life of dependence. To be made in the image of God means that we live a life of dependence, meaning we are the image. We are the product. We are not the original. Without God, we don't exist. 
And so we only exist because God exists. And so therefore, our life is in relation to the one who pre-exists us. That means we are fundamentally dependent. Right away, God had to give Adam regulation for how to live his life in the garden. Adam was dependent on God. Adam was made in God's image and he was dependent on God to explain his life to him. Adam, I've made you. Here is this place I have made you. Here is this garden. Enjoy fellowship with me. Here is the regulation for how to live in this world. Being made in the image of God means that we live a life of dependence before our creator. But not just dependence. Secondly, to be made in the image of God means that we also live in relationship to God. That God is not just out there and away from us. David is able to look up at the stars and know the God that made those stars because he is in relationship with this God. A relationship of communication where God speaks to us and we hear his voice and we pray to him and he cares for us. To be made in the image of God is to be made for a life of relationship with God in which there is interdependence and then also relationship, vital communion and relationship. And the third point, and this is the one that people usually pick up on, to be made in the image of God is to literally be God's image and therefore to reflect him, to be like him or to mirror his character. And here's this point of significance, that because humanity is the crowning glory of creation, they are distinct from the rest of creation. We are not God. We are not little gods, lowercase g, gods. We do not share God's divine nature. God didn't create us by taking a piece of himself and then putting it on us. No, Psalm 8 verse 5 says that we are made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. And the glory and honor that we are crowned with is the possession of the image of God. And what that means, and, and, and this is not, uh, it might seem perhaps overly philosophical, it's not because you, you can make sense of this here. The reason why you can think and the reason why you can be in relationships and the reason why you can get angry and the reason why you can be merciful and the reason why you can consider and the reason why you can reason is because you are a rational being. And the rationality of your existence is a reflection of the fact that God made you with this capacity to know, to think, to do. To be made in God's image is to possess these non-physical attributes and they are expressed as a relationship of possessing God's image. And humanity is the only part of creation made in his image. And so we reflect God, we are like him, we mirror his character because we are made in his image. And the fourth thing here is that to be made in God's image means that we represent God as his stewards. Do you see that in verse 6? Psalm 8 verse 6 is also a reflection of Genesis 2 where David says, you, God, the creator, have given humanity. Verse 6, dominion over the works of your hands. 
When God placed Adam in the garden, he placed Adam there as uh, the terminology is a vice regent, a steward, a lower ruler of the order of God's rule. He is not God. He is like God and therefore he is God's representative in the garden to work it and to keep it and to exercise dominion. Do you remember God told Adam to name these things? Exercise authority in this creation and when Adam did that, he was exercising stewardship and he was representing God by authority. And that's what David means when he says, you have given hum humanity dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. Verse seven, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. When you exercise your humanity in relationship to the creation, to your pets, to your livestock, to the fields, you are exercising the dominion that God has given humanity and therefore you are imaging God. So what this means then is that human life is dependent on and oriented toward God. And so you want to have a clear answer to this question, but here is also a point of departure for how we think about this, that all human life, all human life is lived in response to God. And it will either be a response of communion or a response of rebellion. Every human being lives as God's image bearer, and they will either embrace that and live in communion with their God, or they will not. There are no other options. Or to say it the way, positively speaking, the way Augustine said it, listen to this. Augustine said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And what that means is that humanity that attempts to define itself apart from God will only ever be a restless and miserable humanity because life only makes sense when it is in relationship to the God who gave life. If you want to reflect on that more so, go home and read the book of Ecclesiastes because the book of Ecclesiastes is all about this point. That humanity looks in all the wrong places to try to understand their lives. And they make that error. And the second error they also make is they look in the wrong places and then wrongly conclude that these wrong sources will satisfy them. They won't. And so what the Christian faith offers, what the Christian worldview offers, is that rather than a meaningless existence and rather than a subjective existence, the Christian worldview offers a transcendent personal God who makes us and then gives us purpose by placing us here in this world to seek his will and live for his glory. So, why do you exist? Why do you exist? And the answer to that question is, is that you exist for God. Or the children's catechism again asks the question, who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? What's the answer? For his glory. 
And that is not some strange Christianese type answer. That undergirds the reality of your life. As question one of the Shorter Catechism says, that our chief end, our highest purpose is to glorify God. Do you do that? Do you do that? Now, short on time, here's four ways that you can think about glorifying God. Very quickly, are you ready? One, we ought to glorify God and live into our existence as the image of God by worshiping God. That's what David's doing here in Psalm 8, isn't he? Verse 1 and verse 9 say the exact same thing. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you worship God? When you worship God in singing his praise and declaring his truth and living under that, you are glorifying him and showing forth the reality for why you exist. You glorify God in your worship. Secondly, you may also glorify God in your body. And we ought to glorify God in our body because the body is God's good creation and your eyes and your ears, your hands and your feet, your mouth, your brain are all instruments to serve, to honor God. And as a Christian believer, we ought to do that. And that, that carries with it all manner of human sexuality that ought to be lived under the banner of God's truth and glorifying God with our bodies. Third, you are able to glorify God with your work. Even if you're retired, you glorify God with your work because when God placed Adam in the garden, his original intent was to work in that garden not as a curse, but as a blessing that he might know his purpose, a vocation. There is dignity in the work that you do. Whether you are employed for a paycheck or whether you are a stay-at-home parent or whether you are retired, there is dignity in your labors because God has made you to work and glorify God in your labors. And we're also able to finally glorify God in our rest, our worship, our bodies, our work, and finally our rest, because God patterned that and demonstrated that we ought to glorify God in our rest, which is what we do on the Lord's day as God rested, so we also rest, but you also glorify God when you rest by engaging in your hobbies and the things that you like to do and the way you express praise to God by taking a walk and doing crocheting and scrapbooking and woodworking, whatever else you do for pleasure, you are able to glorify God in your rest as you express dominion and skill and ability. And so you see the idea of glorifying God is an all-encompassing reality. And the Christian worldview offers to this answer, offers to this question of meaning, why do we exist? The only answer that will really satisfy, the only answer that really has any meaning, objectively speaking, objectively true. And so people of God, we find our meaning because Jesus Christ exists and makes us his own. And I hope that God by his spirit is continuing to form the way you look at the world and shape your core convictions of your Christian worldview, especially on this point of why you exist. Your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. May we all do that and increasingly so. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you give us life and you give our lives purpose and meaning. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit that you would help us to apply this truth 
we would see our lives under the banner of your astounding grace and go forth as those who live under your command, joyfully so. We pray these things and ask for them in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.